Hi, I'm Christopher Ward. Welcome to Famous Lost Words. As always, my partner in crime, the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. Remember last week we were hearing from Burton Cummings when, on When Rock Stars Attack? <laughs> yeah. And he's taking a slam at what he considers kind of the glamour boys of the day from glamour rock. I, I believe that he didn't have a clear idea of what those artists would become, especially David Bowie. He's really taking yeah. a swing at Bowie. Well, now he's got the gloves off. I think he might have some more to say. That's right. So I want to play the rest of the interview that we did with Burton Cummings in the early part of the 70s. So we're going to hear the rest of that in just a few minutes. Before we proceed, though, I just want to say that a lot has happened with Burton Cummings in the last few days. He was in a car accident about a week ago. Now, he is fine, but based on his uh, Facebook postings from last week, he is quite banged up. So we are definitely thinking of him. We had this interview planned for the whole time for this week, so it's uh, it's quite ironic that based on the fact that he's in the news so much with wanting to sing uh, you know, for the Winnipeg Jets and all that, that he's back in the news. Um, but we definitely still want to play you this interview. There's some really good stuff in it. Also, we're going back to about 1996 with an interview with Sheryl Crow on the release of her second album. Now, you've heard this interview. Isn't it good? It's terrific. It, it actually kills me now that you're saying that it's over 20 years old. Yeah. I remember that time just so clearly. Yeah, because she'd had the smash with mm-hmm. All I Want to Do That's right. and Leave in Las Vegas. And then she wanted to do something different, and that's a challenge for an artist. She's very, very charming. The singing school teacher. Yes, fantastic. <laughs> and boy... Does she have a story to tell about being on tour with one of the biggest artists of all time on one of the biggest tours of all time yeah. and how that experience wasn't what she expected? That's uh, that you got to listen for that. That's great. Um, okay. Speaking of when rock stars attack, there's a moment in which your little friend over here, little Tommy Jokic, got attacked by Stephen Stills, and we're going to hear that today. <laughs> so I asked Stephen a simple question, and he kind of came at me, but it's perfectly fine. I mean, you know, I'm still here, I'm still standing. And this is from about 22, <laughs> 23 years ago as well. Um, so right around the same time as the Cheryl Crow interview, I talked to Stephen Stills, and I asked him a fairly innocent question, and he kind of let me have it. But it's, uh, but, uh, but it's a great, other than that, I think it's a pretty good chat. Yeah, he was just toughening you up. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> And also on When Rock Stars Attack, John Lennon. This is really extraordinary. He takes a shot, and this is a well-placed, and it's a serious kind of accusation against one of the biggest bands of that era. Who And I thought these guys were friends. So it's really interesting what he says about the Rolling Stones. And some people might think that John Lennon is completely right about this. So, And then we end the show, of course, with the wisdom of Dave. But first of all, Let's talk to Burton Cummings. Tom, mm-hmm. when I was at Kelvin High School in Winnipeg, which you may not have known. What? Yeah, I was there for one year. So did you know Neil Young from your Winnipeg days? No, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, while I was there, I discovered that the local community center was the place you'd go to hear cool bands. And I'd moved from Toronto because we were sort of into, into clubs at that point. That was certainly not true there. So, anyway, the shows were all ages, and then after the show, we'd head down the Pembina Highway to the Salisbury Steakhouse, known as the Sal's, to play the mini jukeboxes and talk about the band we'd just seen. So, one of the very best bands I saw at the River Heights Community Center was the Devrons. Really? Mm-hmm. Featuring a lead singer named Burton Cummings. Oh, tell us more, Uncle Christopher. Well... <laughs> 
This goes back. Um, you know what? The Manitoba Music Museum actually has a great site, and they have some wonderful photographs of that band. Mm-hmm. Burton got hired by Chad Allen and the Expressions, who'd had a big hit with Shaken All Over. Mm-hmm. You remember that, of one of the great guitar riffs, right? So anyway, he was hired to share lead vocals with Chad Allen. Oh, boy. As you can imagine, that really didn't last very long. Burton became the lead singer and the keyboard player. The band became known as the Guess Who, and the rest is history. Right. Let me just stop you just right there for a second. You know, a lot of people do not think that Winnipeg was the hotbed of Canadian talent. They would never think of that. You know, they might think of Montreal, Toronto, the, the, the Yorkville scene, or, or, um, or Vancouver. But you talk to Randy Bachman, who, of course, was part of this whole scene, and he will tell you and he will convince you that for some reason, Winnipeg was a hotbed for talent and had a thriving music scene there. And all the teenagers in that area were so well served and were like giddy with the, with the riches that they faced when it, whenever they walked down the street to go to a bar. And all these bands, it was competitive, but it was also very friendly. And uh, we need to hear more about this scene from Randy Bachman, which we will do hopefully uh, in an upcoming episode. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. It was... It was very, very hot scene. I think maybe because it was isolated. So uh, there was like an incubator for rock and roll in in Winnipeg. And so is that how you felt about it? Like, were you there? Did you see a lot of bands during your time there? I did. Yeah. All of the community center because I wasn't of age. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Now, Burton is a force of nature. Oh, yeah. And in this interview, he does not hold back. (laughs) Let the opinions fly. Here he talks about the real reason for a band to get on stage. I would rather just be in a band that goes out and and has a good time making music in front of a live crowd. I don't really care. I wouldn't care if we played to blind audiences every night because I don't really care what we look like. I don't think that's important at all. Our validity should come, you know, through the system. And uh, it's necessary to a point... I guess. Like, it's pretty boring when guys just go up there and flip themselves out. But you can, but you can entertain a crowd with music, I think. I mean, there's a group, like, look at a group like the Allman Brothers. They go out and they play like hell for two or three hours, maybe. And there's no, uh, it's just honest music, you know. And they get off on each other and the crowd in turn gets off on that. As you know, the Guess Who had an unbelievable run of singles. But this, according to Burton had a downside. We started out with, we had such a string of hit singles that we were branded as Bobby Vinton's and uh, La 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 Dee Da Band, and then we just um, kept going, and we had personnel changes and this and that, but we never really stopped recording. We always kept recording and trying to learn more about production and and trying to sort of play in the big leagues. And now now after all these albums, it's just... um, we make music now rather than cut records, I think, and there is a big difference. Here, he recalls uh, when the Guess Who began to be taken seriously as an FM band. Do you remember when groups were divided? Mm-hmm. You were either AM, like the you know, like Starland vocal band, say, mm-hmm. or, or <laughs> you were FM, like right. Steely Dan. Yes. There's a connection to a movie there, but never sure. mind. Uh, anyway, they weren't just a top 40 band. It's really, it's really hard because uh, even though we, we started cutting some decent albums, they still wouldn't listen to them. Or a lot of FM radio people wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole because of all the commercial success that we had had. But now, uh, 
I've traveled around like in the last six or eight months. I've really heard a lot of our stuff on FM radio. Uh, almost every cut we've ever done, I've heard in the last eight months, which which is quite flattering because that's what we were trying to do for the last two years. And I think it was our live at the Paramount album that that made the transition. They just started playing it all over the place in the states, and then they, I think that sort of led to people listening a little more closely to the ones that came afterwards. So when the interviewer asks Burton what he listens to, he reveals what for me were some fairly unlikely sources. I've been influenced by a million people. Like I really used to like Presley. I really used to like Bobby Rydell as a singer. I, I really like people like Lambert Hendricks and Ross, who were the, who were the real vocal innovators of the jazz era they they used their voices like like instruments you know and uh and georgie fame and swing stuff i like a lot of the big band stuff benny goodman woody herman uh tommy dorsey you know i really like some of the things uh joe williams did with count basie i i sort of have this fantasy of singing you know, these hip tunes in front of a big band someday and trying to milk the band for everything I can get. I, I sort of idolized Bobby Darin in his heyday for, for doing just that. He had the ability to to go out and work a band and, and make them almost sweat, even though they were reading charts. It didn't sound like charts. He kind of had something about him that, that got the band swinging. And I, I've always fantasized doing that, you know, but I don't know, That's a that's a big big chunk to bite off. He also talks about what gets him up for a concert. We've reached that point now where there are X hundred thousand people that buy every album we put out the minute it comes out. That takes a long time to reach that point, but it's really gratifying knowing that, just knowing that there there are people and looking into the crowd and seeing the odd mouth mouthing every word that I sing, you know, and these are lyrics I wrote at home in my living room and I'm thousands of miles from home. It's, it's really gratifying. It's, it's very good for the ego. And that's what gets you up, I think. Uh, the, the awareness that there are people there that come to hear what you're about, what you're doing, not just, oh, these eyes an American woman, you know, and the big hit records of whenever they were in school, but, but they're listening to what we're doing now, too, and we haven't stopped yet, see so there'll be a lot more albums too because we've just resigned for another four or five so i that's if if you originally you asked what gets the band up i think that's what it is it's the the continual process of recording having material out that you've all we've always written our own stuff and being able to draw people into a place to come and hear it it's it's quite gratifying okay you're gonna have to duck on this one you ready <laughs> this is the this is for the opinion department okay the question is... Like, he's already given us a lot yeah, already. To, yeah. There's more? Yeah, there is. <laughs> okay. It's not as nutty as the Glamour Boy thing. Okay. This is a question that's fairly straight ahead. Where is music going? And Burton has a strong response. That is the golden question of all time. I don't know what what's coming next, but I, I, I agree that there is. A, we're in a stagnant point right now. Um, it seems that a lot of the newer artists that are breaking onto the scene are are stealing things and rehashing old things. Um, case in point, the Pointer Sisters. They've ripped off a lot of Lambert Hendricks and Ross things note for note, and a lot of people who maybe aren't familiar with Lambert Hendricks and Ross are going around saying, man, the Pointer Sisters are unbelievable, they're sensational. Where do they get ideas like that? They get ideas like that from records that were cut with Count Basie in 1955. That's exactly where they get them, but a lot of people have never heard those records. And... Uh, uh, maybe all this this um, stealing that's going on is it's just indicating that there is a lull. There aren't enough people 
there are no uh, real leaders right now that are making any new trends. Like a lot of the real pioneers, as you call them, are gone. Morrison is dead. Jimi Hendrix is dead, and the guitar players are still trying to catch up to what he was about. There'll be a long time before there's another guitar player like him. Be a long time until there's another thing like the Beatles. You know, innovators in writing and innovators in harmonies and things. And I think I thought that the closest new thing to that of, of that caliber in the last few years was Crosby, Stills and Nash. But then I guess that the individual uh, personalities just couldn't keep that couldn't keep that going. That first album I thought was one of the freshest things I'd heard in years. Oh, Burton, boy, oh boy. I think at that point in time, people were wondering what was going to happen next, and they're waiting for the next Beatles, and it never really happened. Like a lot of a lot of things happened in the seventies: the rise of uh, of R and B, like Philadelphia Soul, and the rise of disco, and then the rise of punk, and then the rise of classic rock or corporate rock, as some people might might refer to it as. So there's a lot happening, but I don't think Burton would have been pleased about any of those. Probably not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great stuff from Burton. Hey, Cummings. I ran into Burton a couple of times when I was touring in my band. Okay. Both times in Halifax. Right. Playing at a club called Zapata's. Okay. And Burton was doing his annual tour and playing at, is it the Halifax Civic Center? Is that what it's called? The big venue? Anyway, he came down to the bar after the gig and came up and said hi and introduced himself. And, you know, I was like, well, this is cool. Burton Cummings is at my show. He says, "Uh, you want us to get up and play? We're like, yeah. (laughs) So his whole band took the stage. Wow. They did a whole set of oldies. Yeah. And it was fantastic. About what year would this would this have been? I think about like seventy eight. Okay, so you've had a few songs on the charts. Yeah. at that point, so there's a little bit of uh, recognition with you, and you're playing. You're you know you're doing a small tour. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess I'd had enough recognition to justify going to Halifax. Sure. So <laughs> where we had a fantastic time. Sure. Anyway, cut to exactly one year later. Yeah. We're back in Halifax. Yeah. We're back at Zapata's. Burton comes. Hey, how are you, man? <laughs> Burton. The stage is yours. So he gets up and jams a whole bunch more oldies boy, uh, with boy. a guy named Henry Small, who was yeah. in his band at the oh, time. Oh, yeah. And he joined Prism eventually. Did he? Yeah. yeah. He was just larger than life, mm. funny as hell. My sound man said something funny because he had to mix Burton. He said, I've never mixed a singer that is so loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Burton can project whether he's oh, yeah. singing or... Or, as we just found out, whether he's just talking. <laughs> I want you to tell us a little bit more about Burton, because I find it interesting. So, you're, you're saying that he was not only generous and a lot of fun when you met him twice uh, you know, on the road in Halifax, but he, what, what happened after that? Well, I only heard about it because I didn't hear it. Is apparently he was on a number of interviews, and people would say, oh, have you heard any cool upcoming bands? And he mentioned our band a number wow. of times. And that's the Christopher Ward band. Yeah, and he was just... Like, he didn't need to do that. It was yeah. really sweet. And, you know, most artists don't share the limelight quite so willingly. Yes. And I just found him really generous hearted. That's great. Was he a cool guy? Was he a nice guy when you guys... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah? Oh, yeah. That's great. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. Okay, so next up, we're going to 1996, a chat with Cheryl Crow upon the release of her second album. This is a great chat. Cheryl Crow in conversation with Dale Smith. Now we've had the big hit record, Tuesday Night Music Club. Now the second album's coming out, self-titled. Now it's time for you to get out and say, I'm back and I can do it again. Well, yes, I guess that would be my role at this particular time in life. Did you ever think, after the success of Tuesday Night Music Club, oh, good Lord, how am I going to top that? 
Yeah, I had a few moments of uh, sheer panic, but actually, for the most part, I just wanted to—I um, wanted to make a record that I felt like I could actually play these songs for the next 25 years. And all I want to do is such a big hit that I really had to consider: can I play every one of these songs for the next 25 years? Because there are nights when I think, <laughs> if I have to play this song one more time, and somebody's in the back of the audience going, "All I want to do, I want to do, it's like free bird." <laughs> So. <laughs> he even did the the hand yeah. symbol. Everybody knows that. It has that. become that. I went to I went to see James Taylor in concert recently, and he mm-hmm. had to go through that whole thing. And it was so funny. You can use this maybe somewhere along the way. He he picked up the songboard, which was laying down in front of him for the band, so they can all follow along and everything. And he picks it up and he goes, "Yeah, I'll get to play Fire and Rain, but first I'm going to play all this crap here." <laughs> and he hands him all the other songs. I thought that's very that's good. good. A little that's sense good. of humor to go along with it, because yeah. you know you got to get used to it. Yeah. You're going to be crap. facing it. You're going to be yeah. facing it. Yeah, no. You know, however, not to knock that song too much, at least it has afforded me the opportunity to do what I'm doing, so I can't slag it too much. That's so. true. That's true. And it is <laughs> it is an extremely popular song. But the new album, which will be out the end of September. Right. And uh, it's got, it's really a, a hodgepodge of all different kinds of elements. There's no singleness to it. You know, you expect everybody, if they, put the, if they, if they go buy the CD and all mm-hmm. they expect is 10 new, all I want to do is... They're not going to get it. But well, that's how my last record was. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But so many people are unaware of that. I mean, yeah, for me personally. Yeah, people who got turned on to my last record because of All I Want to Do, I think they probably went out and bought the record thinking that it was going to be yeah. 10 All I Want to Do's, and they were hopefully not disappointed, but I'm sure they were surprised. Yeah. So this this record sort of... I, I actually think it's more focused than the last record. I did produce it, so I, I, I guess I think that it's more focus because I, I went into it with the intent of making a certain kind of record so yeah. I liked it because the the, the the style of this album is more mm-hmm. towards the song that I like leaving Las Vegas yeah the more the bump and grind of that yeah is more appealing to me and I heard a lot more of that on this album yeah actually I think this record sort of it, it does a does a bounce off of of uh, leaving Las Vegas and then I think it takes one more step towards sort of um, uh, being really rural Middle America, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully, it's a little rawer and a little less produced than the last record. So yeah, let me just do a little backdrop on you here because mm-hmm. this is the first time I've got a chance to talk to you. Many people don't know this. I didn't until recently about the way that you moved into the music business in, in, and pretty quick, I might add, because you came out to the uh, came out to LA in about the mid '80s. Yeah. And the first big job you had was as a as a, a backup singer on uh, Michael Jackson's Bad Tour. Yeah, I moved out in 1987. And I'd been a school teacher. And um, I taught for a couple of years, and I'd been writing songs since I was 16 and playing in bands. And I finally decided after two years of teaching that I would make the move and just see see how far I could go with it. And at that point, I'd had songs that were being covered by different artists. I had a song that had been covered by Eric Clapton. and So I moved to L.A., and six months later, I crashed an audition for Michael Jackson, and I went on the road. And although touring with him as a background singer was... A departure from what I'd always done. I'd always had my own bands, and I'd always been a side musician. Um, although it was a departure, I, I I got to really experience not only the music industry firsthand, but also the world. I had just barely been out of Missouri, so I moved to L.A., which was a really rude awakening. And six months later, was on my way to Japan to play for eighty thousand people. So it was, yeah, it was it was a real good uh, a real good learning lesson. Baptism by fire. Yes, it was. And then you also did some work with Don Henley mm-hmm. on his yeah, end of the Innocence project. Yeah, shortly after that, uh, I went on the tour. I went on the road with uh, 
with Don, and you couldn't get two more different artists. No, I was going to say to, I, to, to hear that you work with Don Henley mm-hmm. does not surprise me as much. Yeah. To hear that you work with Michael Jackson does surprise I'm me. I'm still surprised by it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a, that was quite a draining experience for you, the Badger, because you came down from it that was. afterwards. And... You know, I, I'd like to say that it was a really incredible, wonderful experience, but for the most part, it was a real. Um, there were some things about it that were really distasteful. And um, then to go on the road with Don Henley, that sort of reacquainted, reacquainted myself with with getting into music for the reasons that matter. You mm-hmm. know, Don's, Don's been in it for a long time. He's a real kind of family guy, and he tours with his with his um, band. And he, you know, every di- diner we went to, he was there. And he's very, very hands on. And yeah. Michael never learned our names, and I haven't seen him since the day the tour was over. And it was nearly two year tour. Yeah, there were things about the tour that although I'm really glad I had the experience of it I, I were it was it was almost like being on Broadway I mean it was very camp every night was the same it was very you know he says the same thing every night in between every song so. I love you Budapest <laughs> Phil name here how you doing Tokyo yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. where am I now yeah. to your new album one of the songs that really caught my attention was the song Home mm-hmm. what's that about well, that's one of those freaky songs that um, kind of wrote itself, and later on when I looked at the words, I thought, wow, I'm certainly hoping this isn't going to be like a preministic sort of, I'm going to be married at 45 looking back on my life, wishing yeah, there's I a real done desolate, things different. Yeah, a real desolate tone about the whole thing. No, I don't know. I was in, we recorded this record in Kingsway, and um, you know, I'd been on the road for two and a half years, and I think a lot of what's on the record, although some of the lyrics... Um, luckily enough, kind of just came to me in spurts. Uh, I think there are real, um, there's real work of the subconscious kind of going on there, stuff kind of working its way out. And that particular song, it was really about somebody who just kind of looks back on their life and thinks that, you know, maybe one or two of the choices they made prevented them from really experiencing a whole life. And although it's kind of sad, I think a lot of people can kind of relate to that. In fact, my mom listened to it. My mom said, that is profound. And I thought, oh, God, I hope my mom doesn't feel like she missed out on life by marrying my dad. But anyway. So. Now, you come from a family with the music in it, though. Yeah. In fact, my mom and dad both were musicians. And yeah. I, I say that jokingly about my mom. But they've been married 42 years, and they are really close, and they have a great marriage, and they laugh all the time. And they still really enjoy music. But they were in a swing band when I was a kid, so... I grew up around, around a lot of music and a lot of partying. and A lot of partying. Yeah, it was different then. You know, this was like late 60s, early 70s. And yeah. Although they weren't big band music, you know, this was when everybody was drinking and smoking and people, you know, uh, they, the good they, old days. The huh? good old days. You know, things have really changed since <laughs> yeah. people have become healthy. But yeah, it was, it was good. They, I grew up very close to Memphis and they, they were into. Uh, you know, a lot of rhythm and blues, a lot of uh, early rock and roll, and uh, as well as some of the really great torch singers like Rosemary Clooney and mm-hmm. Judy Garland and Billie Holiday, and even as as far left as as Aretha. So, you mentioned we were mentioning the drinking and the smoking and the partying mm-hmm. and all that. You've got an attitude, or not an attitude, rather. It's a, sort of a. I do have an attitude. You've got an attitude. You've <laughs> got an attitude. I gotta tell you. Uh, but you, you've got sort of an image that may follow you around, rightly or wrongly. I don't know. Are you the type of person that we could, you know, party with all night? 
Well, I had a funny thing happen. Uh, maybe it's been a year ago, or maybe it's been a little bit longer. But I picked up a magazine, a European magazine. I think it, maybe it was Mojo, and they'd done this article on me that said, "Oh, she gets smashed before every gig. She throws up every after every gig." And the byline was, "Cheryl Crow leads the life of Janis Joplin." All this, and I thought, "Wow, that's that's so sad that um, I I should be having more fun than I'm having <laughs> to get that kind of article written about me." No, I really don't. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not a reformed alcoholic. However, you know, in my earlier days, I drank a lot more than I do now, and I just think it's, uh, you know, you 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 grow up and you sort of reformulate your priorities. And I was missing out on a lot, but I, I've never been too big of a priority. Like I've never really been into drugs and stuff. And I, um, you know, I grew up drinking beer in Middle Missouri, and that's, you know. How we did it. Give me a bud. Give me a bud. That's right. <laughs> I'm the walking advertisement for Bud Light. <laughs> that is a terrific interview. It really is. There's so much to unpack with that interview. It's funny. I actually think I, I interviewed her myself a year or two after this or around this time. And I asked her if she was relieved that she had hits other than All I Want to Do. Because ah. a song like that will kind of paint you into a corner. Yeah, it can kind of right? yoke you. And you could tell that she appreciated what that song did for her, right. but also that it kind of handcuffed her. And she was she managed to eke out a different path for her music and lasted a good long time. And she's still touring. She's still performing. You know, she doesn't have hit singles on the radio anymore, but I don't think the radio right now is conducive to her sound, and I don't think she cares. I think she's just right. glad, glad to be playing. Well, she's a fantastic musician, singer, producer, Songwriter. I mean, she really, really does it all. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting because, you know, she's a trained studio vocalist. That's how she got all those big gigs as a background singer. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, she has this sort of raw, loose feel as a vocalist. And it's really hard to have both of those things, the yes. discipline and the sort of freedom yeah. to be a very expressive singer. Yeah, like she's a pro who can do all kinds of background singing and all that. And yet she's also this... You know, deeply organic and real singer. Mm -hmm. That's terrific. You know what I love in there is the contrast between her two big employers. I was just going to say Michael Jackson, right? And that was a huge tour. I think that was the bad tour. And I think what happened is she sang the Saida Garrett part from the song I Just Can't Stop Loving You, which was the first ballad from that. So she is on stage, like literally nose to nose with Michael Jackson, and they're singing this beloved ballad, this big moment. And I don't know if you've seen any pictures of that or any video of that time. No, none. Sheryl Crow is in this bizarre, big, white 80s wig. Like, it's <laughs> not her at all, but it's a big job. And remember, wow. she's just coming out of being, you know, this professional in, in L.A. and all that, and she gets she lands this big well, gig. Well, and not that far removed from being a teacher. That's right. That. And so here she is on stage dressed in these tight clothes and this bizarre outfit and this big hair and all that, and she's singing this big song. Fans that are going out of their minds and they have no personal connection at all. Hmm. Nuts. And then, of course, she tours later with Don Henley and I think I may have seen her on that tour. It's the end of the Innocence Tour. Yeah. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. Poor Tom. I'm Christopher Ward. You sang Poor Tom because I interviewed Stephen Stills in the mid to late 90s. The reason why I got a conversation with Stephen Stills, we weren't really playing his music at all at the radio station I was at and I'm still at, because 
you know, they had not had Crosby, Stills, Nash, or Stephen Stills, or Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young had not really had any hit records. But we were doing a special on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, and so when I, was this? So this was maybe 94, 95, 96, oh, right around that okay, time. Okay. So they're playing up at Kingswood Music uh, Theater. I'm going up there. I get an interview with him. I line it up. And I'm asking him a lot about the band. And you'll hear one of the, one of the answers that he gives me because I ask him about, you know, how... Crosby, Stills, and Nash kind of keep getting together and then splitting up, getting together and splitting up. And he tells me I have cement in my head. You'll hear that in just a few minutes. So, <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. So let's listen to my chat with Stephen Stills. I'd like to go back to the beginnings of the band, if you don't mind. You, uh, you had just finished with Buffalo Springfield. Uh, uh, David had left the birds. Graham was just about to leave the Hollies. Take us through the first steps of how you guys actually came together as Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Um, Cass Elliott introduced, we all went to the, uh, to the whiskey to see the Hollies and David and I went together. And then after that, Cass Elliott introduced David to, I mean, uh, David to Graham. And then we were all hanging out at her house and John Sebastian was in the pool. (laughs) And I think that David and Graham got introduced at uh, at Joni Mitchell's house, uh, but uh, but uh, but I just remember it like it's one of those crystal moments, you know. We were sitting around the dining room table, which led through the living room, which led outside, and in the distance is John Sebastian. So there's four levels, and the three of us, and so so Cassis sang this song, and. Uh, we sang uh, in the morning when your eyes, you know, and um, and it only has one verse, you know. So uh, Graham says, "Sing it again, sing it again," and then has to do it one more time. And he put his voice on, and it was like boing. We was you know sort of you know big light bulbs, and and uh, just so we, we knew we. We're on the way to something really cool. So we plotted and schemed for about three months of how to get all this arranged because the Atlantic was on Epic. And, I mean, uh, Graham, uh, all the Hollies were on Epic and, you know, and contracts and stuff like that. So it turned out that uh, Poco wanted to, uh, Richie Fure had had a band, had a, had a uh, thing with uh, Poco one of the former, but you remember that band. So I went to Ahmed Erdogan and said, why don't you trade Richard Fure for Graham Nash? <laughs> and he said, that's a great idea. I'll get to arrange it tomorrow. And so, because he still had, you know, he still vaguely had us under contract, you know. And, uh, and so, uh, and so we, you know, we did that. And then we all went to England and uh, got a flat in Moscow Road. Graham happened to be the had the most money because he had all those huge hits with the Hollies, and you know, even at two or three percent or whatever ridiculous sum they paid back then, he still had some money pa- pa- stashed away. And uh, and we and we sat there and learned our first new album on acoustic guitars. I feel that we learned the first that we could sing the whole thing. And, of course, nobody knew what I was going to do when we got to the studio. I kept saying, oh, I've got this great bass part. I heard this great. And they called me Captain Many Hands because I could, you know, they knew I could do all this stuff. And we went in there and and just started. And, 
and we had just we had the best time. So that's my recollection of the very beginnings. And then after we had the first album success, Ahmed suggested that we take Neil back in the band, I think because somebody had put a bug in his ear. So uh, and that was the second album. The, uh, the chemistry of the group has always been really interesting in that uh, people have, have come and gone. and Well, not necessarily come and gone, but you guys have split and come back together again. Uh, was it really hard because of the divergent personalities to keep you together? And why did you, why did you end up being, uh, coming back together eventually? We planned it that way. We used Crosby, Stills, and Nash so that everybody's name would be in the title, and we would have no problem going and doing other things. And we have had more difficulty explaining the logic of that to the press over the last 30 years. It's as if you guys had brains of cement. And we planned it that way. So you just keep it wide open so you can come and go as you want. It's, it was kind yeah. of a revolving thing? Yes, because we'd seen so many bands fall apart fighting bitterly because they wanted to go work with somebody else for a year or two. So we wanted to make art that was sort of home base. And then we could go do that and go do that and come back and whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, uh, performing now in 1990, 1996, is it? Yeah. And the fact that you, ha- you have to get out there and play, uh, play some of the songs you know, night after night. I heard someone say recently that to keep it fresh, you have to remember the fact that some people in your audience are seeing you for the very first time. Is that what you do to keep it fresh? Well, we change the arrangements. Uh, But the old songs are still good. And if you're a classic rock act, you know, uh, those people expect to hear those songs and you sing those songs as long as they're paying you. You know, I really have a strong feelings about that and and going and indulging yourself in in uh, you know in I mean it's nice to new, do a new, few new things, but not many because people oh that's interesting you know and it's like but they go nuts when they got the one that they can sing along with and stuff and it's like it's it's their money it's their time we're we're there to entertain them and take them away for a couple of hours and uh, and and. I really think that we owe them that. I do feel sorry for you. Thank you. <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm kind of proud of myself that I didn't kind of back down. Nah, I just kind of, I, I stayed there, yeah. but if I felt kind of bad. <laughs> yeah. I'm anyway. a big Stills fan. I, I mean, just musically. Sure. I, I, I've never met the man. Yeah. But uh, I loved uh, a lot of his work after the group with the solo albums that he did and mm-hmm. his group Manassas with Chris yeah. Hillman. There's a lot of great songs in that catalog, and he's an unbelievable guitar player. That he still has intact is his mm-hmm. abilities as a musician. Yes, but his voice isn't that. His voice was always kind of unusual and gruff, um, and, and he, unfortunately he hasn't been able to hang on to any of that higher range, has he? Speaking of that, it, I just remember, did you hear he did a record just recently, um, a duo record with Judy Collins? No. Yeah. Oh, okay. And they used to be lovers back in the day. Yeah. And in fact, Sweet Judy Blue Eyes. Was about her. Was that's about her. right. Yeah. That's right. Well, yeah, so that's crazy stuff. So Stephen Stills in conversation with poor little old me. Okay, time now for When Rock Stars Attack. The more? Real, there's more. There's more. <laughs> that's not all, so, Tom. <laughs> John, John Lennon circa 1970. Okay, so John and Yoko are planning a big concert. Right. And they're asked by the press... About the Rolling Stones free concert in Altamont, California, where the Hells Angels motorcycle gang are hired as security. And of course, Altamont was for many people the symbolic end 
of the 60s and also the hippie love movement um, where, the, where that event, Altamont, devolved into chaos and violence with one concert goer getting murdered. And John Lennon pulled no punches when he placed the blame squarely with the Rolling Stones. Listen to this. The Stones one, well, that that was bad, you know. And I've heard a lot of things about that concert, and I think it was just a bad scene, you know, and uh, it won't be like that, you know. But you must be very careful, you know. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's... I believe in uh, the way a thing is set up and the image the Stones want and the kind of thing they create, create around them. I think they created that rather subconsciously or whatever, and that is the result of, of the image and the, the mood they create, you know. And I think if you create a peaceful mood, you stand a better chance, you know. But we have six months to prevent that. The Stones thing was done like that, you know. Wow, isn't that interesting? You know, I wonder if he had seen the film mm. at that point. Give right. me shelter. Yeah. Because not that it exonerates the Stones, but you can tell that they're as shocked by the sequence of events as mm-hmm. anyone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those shows in that era, they didn't have, you know, the professional level of security that we do now that protect people. Well, I know, but it was such a wrong-headed move for them to hire Hell's Angels. Like, It wasn't police, it was Hell's Angels. Now, Hell's Angels had a bit of a grip, I think, on the hippie movement, on the peace and love movement, which is kind of counterintuitive because we know maybe we know way more about hell's angels now than we did then and then they did because clearly they wouldn't they would not have wanted this to happen but boy oh boy like why those guys but you know george harrison invited hell's angels over to apple records and to hang out with them and they hung out with them for like 10 days and there's lots of accounts of hell's angels being at apple records and kind of running roughshod over the place when george harrison is kind of going wow i didn't think these guys were like that (laughs) so clearly the beatles weren't alone so maybe john shouldn't be casting aspersions on the stones for doing what they did but it really was a wrong-headed move but i guess they just didn't know it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go back. This is a funny clip. We're really going to cleanse the palate here with a different chat of a different sort. So Peter, Paul, and Mary, one of their biggest hits was Puff the Magic Dragon, okay? <laughs> yeah. And of course, the rumor was that Puff the Magic Dragon was a song about drugs and about marijuana specifically. And here's Paul from Peter, Paul, and Mary kind of setting the record straight on a song that he wrote. For those of you who have known the folklore that has arisen around Puff the Magic Dragon, let me tell you as the writer that it's not about drugs. If I wanted to write a song about drugs, I, I certainly would have been able to. Even though my knowledge of drugs and the drug culture was limited at the time, I would have written a song that might have said, Hard drugs, they will kill you. They can treat you fine. They will ruin all your love and they will mess up your mind. Oh. I, now, I get the impression that he's had to make that explanation more than once. For sure. When he's doing the faux thing where he's singing the song, I mean, with yes. the new lyrics. I mean, yes. I think it's a story well told, For well sure. polished. It is funny how he says, I wasn't familiar with the drug culture at that time. At the time. <laughs> so he leaves the door open that he's probably a little bit more familiar with it in the present day when he's making those comments. Very funny. Very funny. Okay, so that just about does it for Famous Lost Words, but time now, as always, for the Wisdom of Dave. (sighs) 
There's, we used to say there's a little Van Halen in everybody and we just go around trying to bring it out of them. Now we say that there's a little bit of Van Halen in them and we're just going around trying to cram a little more in your ears. You know? And uh, it comes out in any language, any language, any country. We went to South America, no problems down there. I speak Spanish and Portuguese, so we just changed all the filthy little anecdotes into you know, the current language. There you have it, the wisdom of Dave from none other than David Lee Roth of Van Halen, just around the time when he's about ready to leave the band. But he's still full on, full in Van Halen. And I don't think anybody has any idea that he's about to leave. But there's some of his wisdom that Dave likes to impart with us at the end of every episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Famous Lost Words and to our producer, Mr. Adam Karsh. Thank you, Adam. And Tom, terrific. Thanks. Thanks.